Hi folks, welcome to another instalment of the O Group on the World Water Nation podcast, where myself, World Water Explorer Lawrence Waller, and my colleague, Bathful Guide, Ben Main, here at World Water Nation. In this episode, we're diving straight back into our conversation with British historian James Holland, talking about the Sherwood Rangers Yeomi during the Second World War. So without further ado, here we go. Well, let's let's talk armour and armouries. Um, how did the regiment's equipment change throughout the war years in terms of its capabilities, I guess its protection for the crew and firepower? Well, you know, when they're first mechanised, you know, they're on they're on um, Crusaders and Grants, and then they get um, they do get some Shermans before um, Alamein because they're in they're in ten corps and they're they're part of the kind of corps de chasse that um, that Montgomery calls it for Alamein. Um, and by 1944, they're they're entirely in um, um, they're in Shermans, apart from the recce troop, recce squadron, which is in in Honeys, you know, Stuart, um, Stuart light tanks. Um, and they've got um, they've got a handful of of I think they've got uh, three or four fireflies per squadron, um, which they put in the t- into the squadron HQ troop. But then John Semkin has the idea of of spreading them out between the troops and actually reducing the number of troops, but having more fireflies. So you have three Shermans instead of having five troops of three, you have four troops of four, with a, a firefly attached to each of the troops, being the fourth tank in each of those four troops. Um, and that's that gets sort of universally adopted. To be to be honest, I mean the problem with the firefly is that although it's got this whopping great great seventeen pounder in it, which is just stupendously good. It takes up so much space in the turret that that there's no room for a lap gunner, a sort of co-driver, uh, with with the Browning machine gun. So your your machine gun down. Also, the flash is incredibly bright um, and reveals your position the moment you fire, um, and also dangerous. Uh, and also, the the barrel is just too long for the tank, so it wobbles, which upsets the the balance of the whole tank. So it's kind of you know if you're going any distance, you would turn the turret around 180 degrees and all this kind of stuff. It does have a little stand that comes up from the sloping armour to kind of hold it into position, but you don't want to be faffing around with that, you know, because someone's got to get out and unlock it and put it down and, you know, it's too much effort. So so the Firefly, despite having this incredible gun, which has this astonishing velocity, which is you know, greater than an 88mm, the notorious, the infamous German anti-tank gun, um, it does come with a few issues. I mean, the interesting thing about the Sherman is, is you know, but the, you know they they have this like this. The, the criticism about them is, is they have that they're too high off the ground, uh, and this is a perception thing. It's because they've got such a distinct profile, but actually they don't particularly have a. Uh, they're not particularly high. They're only two inches taller than a Panzer Mark IV, um, and they're ten inches shorter than a Tiger or a Panther. So they're not. They are ten inches taller than a Cromwell or a Churchill. So two other British tanks, but they're not compared to the Germans particularly. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that you know it's got a seventy-five millimeter gun rather than a rather than a kind of whopping great great anti-tank gun. But actually, what it does do is it has uh, it's incredibly quick firing. It has this gyro gun stabilizer, which no other tank has. Um, the turret can rotate faster than any other tank. Um, it's got fantastic suspension. It's mechanically incredibly sound. It's incredibly maneuverable, and it has that kind of tactical flexibility. And actually, it can fire HE and armored piercing just as easily. Whereas a firefly can't really fly, it can fire HE, but it's not, not nothing like as effectively. It's really an armor piercing gun 
Um, and you want that flexibility of having HE and AP when you're doing, you know, when you're doing infantry support. So, so the Sherman tank is incredibly versatile and incredibly flexible. And what they learn very, very quickly is if they do happen to come across a tiger, what you do is you just fire at it. And that prompts it to kind of get its, shut its hatches, which means it's then blind. Then you maneuver your firefly into position and give it the knockout blow. That's how you do it. I mean, obviously, if you get caught out in an ambush, it's too late to do that. So the key is not to be. But actually, you know, the, the, the occasion where there's a tank on tank, you know, Tiger versus Sherman or Pamper versus Sherman kind of duel is really pretty small. And the times where the Tigers and Panthers come out on top against Shermans is, is not huge. You know, so the other thing about it is they had this kind of idea, you know, they were sort of Tommy Cooker and kind of Ronsons because they, they burst into flames so much. Again, that isn't true at all. They were no more likely to burst into flames than any other tank. You know, so statistically, they're on a par with the Churchill and the, and the, and the Cromwell and the Panzer Mark IV and all the rest of it. I mean, there's, there's no difference at all. There's some really interesting points there. And I mean, from the interview I did with David Render many years ago now, uh, who said this, you know, passed away. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head with a few of those, really. Obviously, with the Firefly, he was saying in his troop, he would tend to put that out, say, on the left or the right flank on its own. Get it, as you say, with that massive flash, get it to fire on whatever any position it is, draw the fire from the Germans, and then hit them with the three Shermans on the right flank. And then yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is all the complaints about the Firefly happen in, in, in Normandy. And that's because they're new and they're in this incredibly close country where it can't really operate. You, you don't hear anyone complaining about fireflies by the time they're in Belgium and Holland. You know, and there's, and there's so many occasions that I've been writing about where, you know, they're, they're suddenly they're in a situation where, I don't know, a Yags panther has turned a corner. And Sergeant Nesling is there with his firefly and drills it and knocks it out in one. And had Nesling not been behind him with his 75 millimeter, and the truth of the matter is, is, is you want a bit of everything. You want a bit of both. So John Semkin was absolutely right. Using the, putting, putting the fireflies with the 75 pounders in the, in the troop works. And, and it's working together and understand, once you understand the limitations of something, then you can also understand what they can do and what how how to work them and you uh, you learn how to work with those limitations to make some of those limitations less like limitations and work them to their advantage uh, and so the 75 millimeter gun doesn't have the penetration and velocity of a 88 millimeter or a 75 you know the, the 75 millimeter pack gun that the uh, panther has for example but it does have rapid firing and rapid firing is really really useful really useful so, you know, there's an episode with David Render where he's just, he, he looks for his binoculars. You can see around the corner of a bend, there is a, there is a, a Jagd Panzer, which is one of these kind of S, very low profile SP guns with a, with a, a Pac-39 or Pac-40 in it, you know, 75 millimeter anti-tank gun in it. And even though the Jagd Panzer is on the road, stationary in an anti-tank roll, looking straight down the road, he feels confident he can take that on with his 75 millimeter um, Sherman because he can fire quicker and he's got the element of surprise. So he hurtles around the corner, bam, gone. And he doesn't think twice about that. Because again, you mentioned that. And that's, that because he's in a, that's because he's in, a, he's in a Sherman, which gives him that ability to, to move fast and fire on the move. 
because of the gun stabilizing gyro. Well, you also, as you said, you, that criticism of the Sherman having that too high a profile, he said was absolute nonsense because yes, it gives you the views you need, but at the same point in Normandy, in that Bogage, you know, that territory, that terrain, it was the best thing since sliced bread because you could get in. Obviously, yes, you've got the 88, sorry, the Germans not being able to use their 88 minutes. They've lost that uh, advantage, whereas in the desert, obviously that range advantage, and they could just easily just slot in the tanks and obviously have the gun right over the top and firing for that safety and that protection. And I think that really counters that point of that high profile being a, a disadvantage, certainly in that terrain. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, 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 it's just, you know, all these tanks, it's not a question of kind of sort of one being better than the other. It's, it's just they all offer different things. Hmm. I mean, I suppose, you know, but, but when you're looking at a tank in the Second World War, you know, a crew might not think this, but you've got to think of it in, in the round, you know, and, and you know, Sherwood Rangers did 300 miles in kind of nine days or something. You, you know, the Armoured Guards Brigade was moving from the kind of sort of Montpinson, Noiro area up into Brussels doing 250 miles, whatever it was, in four days. You can't do that in a, a mechanically dodgy tank. I mean, you know, you can only do that when you've got mechanical reliability. And they absolutely prove it. I mean, you know, they, they deliver with bells on. And if you're in a tight spot, knowing that your tank can move and is unlikely to conk out is a massive advantage. It gives you an enormous amount of confidence. And that is worth quite a few kind of degrees of firepower. Going back, um, obviously, a little bit now. So they've, they've come out of the desert. Um, they're back in the UK. They are re-equipping. They are retraining, building up for Normandy. Um, really no rest for the wicked, I suppose. That seems a fitting phrase here, really. What was their role for D-Day? And how's, how do things develop? They're obviously given a specialist role, aren't they? Yeah, so they're, they're landing with the first wave. And the idea, original idea is that they're the first people to touch down in their sector of, of Jig Green on on Gold Beach, it doesn't work out that that way because of the, the weather's so bad. So they actually come in third, third off the peg, you know. Um, but they're they're it's infantry sport. It's it's firepower to the infantry. It's to it's to give the infantry that confidence and that ability to kind of crush over wire and uh, shoot up machine gun positions and 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 that extra weight of fire. I mean, you know, two brand new machine guns. Um, you know, they're impervious to mortars and they're impervious to for the most part, and they're impervious to machine gun and small arms. So that gives you quite a lot. Um, obviously, they're not impervious to kind of anti-tank guns. But that is their role, is to, is to work with the infantry. And, and how does D-Day unfold for them? Because obviously they're landing, well, certain sections of the regiment are obviously landing in DD tanks followed up by yep. um, LSTs from memory, with particular, uh, yep. is it one company. One company in reserve, two. Yeah, so it's two, it's two squadrons. So B and Squadron and C Squadron are supposed to be the first to touch down um, in their DD tanks, but actually, instead of letting them out at, at seven thousand yards, they let them in at more like seven hundred. Um, and um, you know, the weather really, really plays a huge part because, of course, you know, if you're in these landing ships, these are flat-bottomed, flat-sided, flat-fronted tin cans which are not really designed to be a very smooth ride on water at the best of times but certainly not when you've got a kind of pretty heavy swell um and strong winds so they don't 
Half of them don't land where they should, and they land a little bit late. I mean, because the last thing you want when, you know, if, if the whole point about the, 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 landing, the landing craft tanks, they're quite big. They're kind of 50 meters long. That's what's really in the way, but, but dis, disgorging their DD tanks at whatever it is, you know, several miles out. And then the LCAs, so the infantry, will pass through them. But if they're having to go right close up to the shore, then the danger is that they then get in the way of the LCAs. But, you know, because they're big and they're sort of pushed around by the wind, I mean, you can just see how it all goes. It can go sort of pear-shaped very, very quickly. So the, so, so the flail tanks and, and the Avrys, you know, the uh, Royal Engineer armoured vehicles, go in first, followed by the infantry, then followed by the Sherwood Rangers. So they're a little bit late, but not by much. I mean, you know, we're talking most of them landed sort of the right side of 8 o'clock. In the morning, instead of seven twenty-five, when they were originally supposed to supposed to land, seven twenty or so. There's an interesting account by Stuart Hills. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of it now. By, oh, by tanking to Normandy, isn't it? Yeah. What was his experience of D-Day in the Normandy campaign? Well, he, you know, he goes he he goes off in his D-Day DD tank, and and they've got problems, and they're going to sink, and so they all have to bail out and get their inflatable dinghy, and sure enough, it does sink. Um, so they then spend the next the whole of D-Day bobbing around on the sea. Don't you get picked up? They don't make it sure until the following day, um, and they don't rejoin the regiment till I think something like the thirteenth of June, something like that. But you know they have to go for a field field delivery squadron. You know, which is one of these sort of marshalling points for kind of armoured units close to the close to the shore. So yeah, you know, it's all a bit of a sort of anti-climax for them. But I mean, thank goodness they survived. I mean, <laughs> it's a very very uh, wouldn't be that account. I mean, it's interesting that book because the book is beautifully written and stuff, but it was it was it was co-written after the war, um, along you know just a matter of kind of sort of twenty years ago or something. Um, whereas he wrote a lot of stuff at the time or or near contemporaneously, um, and actually I've been, although obviously I've been devotedly looking at the book, I've been actually for 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 my book I've been drawing more on the stuff that was written at the time rather than sort of. Um, or floridly written by a, a very talented ghostwriter subsequently. It's slightly the same with David Render. You know, I've got a fantastically irreverent interview. Uh, I mean, you interviewed him, well, uh, Lord, so you you know, um, you know what he was like. Quite a character, you know, wasn't he? Quite a character. <laughs> you know, where whereas uh, the the Stuart Tootle did a stupendously good job in in licking it into a lovely book. Uh, and I think he get, absolutely got the flavour of David, no problem at all. But, but you can see where he sort of padded it out a little bit. Whereas, you know, the raw, unexpurgated David Render is kind of more effective in a way. It's sort of truer to kind of think what, what he was really like. Well, how did, uh, we kind of have touched on it, but how did the men of Shoulder and Jamie sort of adapt to the new terrain, a new style of I don't always use the phrase style of fighting. I don't know if that's right, but it is, let's be honest, it is a different type of battle, isn't it? They've gone from the desert, they're fighting in Normandy in this different, um, closer yeah, no, terrain. Is. Yeah, 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 it really is. It's completely different. Um, well, they just have to learn very, very quickly. They have to learn, you know, the, the, the limitations of the, of the countryside and how they can make it work for them a lot better. You know, the old sort of, you know, one squadron in the middle, two, two out wide, you know, you can't do that in Normandy. You know, so they're they're operating almost completely independently now. Excuse me. Uh, and you also have to kind of work out what your tactics are. Uh, you know, and, and this idea of kind of sort of every as soon as you see a, a, an enemy tank, you know, Panzer, that you just pummel it by with, with as many 
rounds as you possibly can of HE just to sort of get them to shut the hatches and give you and cover them with smoke and give you a chance to sort of get out yourself. I mean, it, it's 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 just that, yeah, it's a different type of operation. And also trying to work out how you work with the infantry. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting, Operation Blue Coat, which is kind of starts at the very end of July 1944. You can see that they're, you know, they're starting to carry infantry into battle, which on one level is quite dangerous. But, you know, obviously war is a dangerous business anyway, but it's but it's less dangerous than them not working together and, and not then getting the mutual benefit from from infantry helping the tanks and the tanks helping the infantry. So, you know, it's 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 about adapting all the time. But as I say, it's these troop leaders, it's these young 19 and 20 year olds and senior NCOs, you know, the troop sergeants, as well as the kind of um, the people like Stanley Christopherson and the 2IC that are really driving this kind of new way of thinking about things. They've obviously gone through a very tough period in Normandy, um, as of all the units obviously had to go through that. Gone through and broken out towards the Sien, the River Sen. And what happens to them after that, though? Where do they go and what's their war experiences after that? Yeah, so they push on through into, into Brussels. Um, they're then given a couple of days lead, and then suddenly they're, they're caught up in the Albert Canal battles. So the Germans have got this huge gap between 7th Army, which is on the kind of sort of eastern western front, if you see what I mean. You know, this is where the Americans are coming, you know, down the kind of sort of more, more the kind of sort of uh, eastern side of Belgium, Luxembourg, northern, northeast France that area that's where where the remnants of seventh army is then you've got 15th army which had been all the way down to the kind of eastern end of the normandy front but but it's on that sort of coastal section going up towards holland and there's a gap in the middle so the first Jaeger army is is hastily cobbled together literally in about four days uh, from a sort of skeleton unit uh, and, and plugs the gap and and the first gap that they're told to plug is the albert albert canal line which runs roughly kind of uh from antwerp uh, down to sort of Maastricht way and is kind of um, it, it sort of cuts across that sort of northern Belgium in a kind of north north northwest to kind of southeast kind of angle and the Germans the kind of early cobbled together units of the first fashion of um, Jaeger army are told to go and hold this come what may to kind of buy time for um, uh, Kurt Student, who's the commander of the First Austrian Army, to kind of sort of um, get all his divisions together and lick them into shape. So they're involved in getting across, the Sherwood Rangers are involved in getting across the Albert Canal just after a little town called Giel. And they're actually, they have an incredibly tough two-day battle uh, where they lose something like 11 tanks knocked out and two more um, uh, badly damaged with a number of troop and and um tank commanders killed and, and wounded so it's a really really bad battle for them um and then they're caught up in market garden you know uh, and but the actions of the germans on the albert uh, albert canal are what have enabled arnhem uh, uh market garden to be defended by the germans really because it is the first thousand jaeger army that they come up against for, for the most part and, and what's the Sherwood Rangers experience in Market Garden? What, what's their involvement? So, yeah, so they're at the sort of back arse end of 30 cores drive up up the highway of hell. Um, and um, they're on a sort of picket duty and they get to uh, Grave and Nijmegen on the 20th. So three days into the operation, uh, well, four days into the operation, I should say. And then um, 
then they're working with the 82nd Airborne in that kind of whole area east of east of Nijmegen up into the Grosbeek Heights, you know, Mook and Beek and Weiler on the German border. And then they're there for a bit and then they get taken out of the line kind of mid-October, uh, pretty much through to kind of mid, mid of, of, of November. And they then get sent further south down to the um, uh, Seafried line uh, where they have the Battle of Geilenkirchen where they're um, working with the 82nd, um, US 82nd Infantry Division at Geilenkirchen. Uh, and that is another really, really tough fight. So they're pulled out of that for December and then it's early January. Then they're taken back up to the Nybergen sector because then it's kind of getting ready for his Operation Blackcock, um, uh, sort of probing forwards, clearing the way for Operation Veritable, which is the kind of, you know, the big one of crossing of the Rhine or getting to the Rhine, getting across uh, to, through the Reichswald, um, breaking out of that, getting into the kind of open area of Germany around Cleve, um, uh, just before the Rhine crossing in the kind of sort of third week of March. They get across the, the Rhine the third week of March and then it's all the way up to Bremen, you know, Kloppenberg and all those kind of sort of that, that long stretch up to Bremen, uh, through Bremen. And then they're into that big kind of flat area between Bremen and Hamburg in the dying days of the war. And that's where they are on the kind of 4th, 5th of May when the, when the war in North, um, Northeast Europe, uh, Northwest Germany finally comes to an end. I think it's fair to say with the you know, was it 30 battle honours um, they accumulated during the war that, you know, rightfully so, might add, they were given some very high praise indeed by General Brian Horrocks, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, the 8th Army Brigade was, was absolutely kind of workhorse for, for 2nd Army um, as one of those independent brigades, which is working constantly with, uh, with the infantry. And... Um, you know the Sherwood Rangers were the most successful of the of the of the regiments that operated with Eighth Army. They're, they're they're the firefighters. You know they're just always there with the infantry. And uh, as we know, Northwest Europe turns into this kind of terrible, ghastly slog. And so they're at the attritional kind of firing line. You know they're they're just they're just in the vanguard of all the all the advances. Um, and it's a very very kind of brutal tough war that they get caught up in. I mean just appalling casualties. I mean, really. Unbelievably bad. I mean, if you think that sort of 600 and just under 700 men in, a, in an armoured regiment, of which about 300 are in tanks, the rest are kind of support troops. And then there's 36 officers. Well, they lose 44 officers just in Normandy alone. It's staggering. 75 other ranks. You know, so yeah, it's really big numbers. I mean, statistically, if, if, you're a, if you're a tank commander in the Sherwood Rangers in Northwest Europe, you're not going to survive statistically. Not, not, not intact. You will get wounded or killed at some point. And okay. a few, a few are still there at the end. A few have kind of miraculously become unscathed. I mean, Stuart Hills and David Render. The reason why we're still reading them is because they survived. But I mean, they were absolute exceptions. And and boy, were they lucky. I mean, time and time again, had tanks knocked out. You know, there's a, there's an occasion where um, Stuart Hills's tank gets hit by. Um, by a Panzerfaust, huge sparks all the rest of it. And part of the sparks and, and, and shrapnel that gets caused as a result of hitting him, he, he hears um, a, a fizz and it just, just, just grazes his forehead and whips off his berry. You know, a fraction of, a, of an inch lower and it would have cut a hole in his head. You said earlier that, that, that element of luck is just unparalleled, isn't it, really? Yeah. You know, why, why are some... Some, why, why do some survive and some not? I just, it's just 
you know, you can you can develop a sixth sense. There's things you can do which can sort of mitigate against you getting killed and wounded. But ultimately, it's lottery. Mm. Well, you alluded to earlier, James. I suppose we'll ask that question. Uh, what books are you currently working on? And can we expect one looking at the Sherwood Rangers during the war? Yeah, absolutely. I'm doing that at the moment. I should be finishing that in a, in a month or so. And uh, it's going to be called Brothers in Arms. And that will be out in September. So, yeah, no, I'm completely immersed in this at the moment. And then I've got to think about War in the West Volume 3. Uh, but it's just whether I can do that. You know, I'm due to do that next. But again, it's just, you know, whether I'll be able to access all the stuff I need to do. So the other thing that's kind of sort of on the sort of uh, back of my mind is it's time to do in fall, really. You know, I've done, I've done the Ambin Box in Burma. I, I sort of see there's a kind of Burma trilogy, you know, of doing uh, Imphal, which will include Kahima, and then doing kind of, you know, the 1945 part as well. Well, it's Nick funny Tina, you mentioned Mandela Burma, to be honest with you, because I would love to get you back on the podcast talking about that. Well, I'd love to get you back on the podcast talking about everything World War II related, but yeah. Burma would be fascinating if you're interested in doing yeah. that at some point. Yeah, any time. Okay. Well, one question I was very keen to ask you, obviously I saw you recently spoke to one of the last surviving officers uh, who served with, during, uh, served with the SRY during the war, uh, Stan Perry. Yeah. What was his experiences? Well, he was, ama- he was just wonderful. I mean, he was incredibly cogent, incredibly articulate about it. Wonderful sense of humour. Um, yeah, so he gets, uh, he, he arrived out very early in June. He then got wounded at, at, um, on the Noiro at Berju. Uh, right at the very end of the Normandy campaign on the, on the 16th of, um, of August. Uh, he then recovered, got out to the Shared Rangers again in kind of end of, end of 1944, beginning of 1945, and was, was wounded during Operation Blackcock um, in the third week of January, and, and, and badly, and, and that was the end of his war. But he's, he's a lovely guy, and actually when I was doing a bit, you know, he, he was very involved in a very big battle at, around Berju in this final stage of the Normandy campaign and you know it's fantastic piecing that together and talking to him about it and stuff obviously for some of those that don't know Operation Blackcock is this the one oh is that pepper pot I'm thinking of now Operation Blackcock can you just outline that for us yeah so this is just this is just sort of this is a pre-operation Operation Veritable is is the big one kind of you know crossing the the, the Reichswald to um which is this big forest on the kind of western border of Germany in the kind of cleave area so uh, Blackcock is a kind of sort of precursor just kind of sort of clear the decks a little bit and, and clear some space before Veritable. One of the last questions, I'll let you go then, if you're taking up more than enough of your valuable time. Um, I would love to touch on Leslie Skinner, uh, a remarkable character. In yeah, no, he's great. Yeah, he's fantastic. And, um, you know, he's a big character in my book, that's for sure. And just remarkable, and he's the padre, and he gets attached. He's the eighth eighth armor brigade padre, but he gets attached specifically to the Sherwood Rangers, and um, he takes it his job very seriously, both from the um, you know offering spiritual solace to the guys, but also in burying the guys. So you know he makes an absolute point of recovering every single person that he possibly can. Um, and Stanley Christopherson is constantly kind of refusing permission for him to go up and recover somebody. Uh, and he also kind of waits for t- burnt out tanks to stop burning and gets in there and scrapes out what he can. And, you know, he's constantly vomiting from his experiences. Um, but never, never stints at all. I mean, you know, he he just keeps going. Um, and him and Hilda Young, who is the um, uh, the, the medical officer, they're, they're a great double act. Get on very well. They've become great friends. And, and they they offer just the most terrific support for the regiment. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. 
because his accounts absolutely fascinating to read and also a terrible example I suppose a very vivid example of the realities of the aftermath of that fighting the fierce fighting they have to go through um because I'm right thinking he also leaves like records of these various barrel locations yeah he does and they're all in the, the Imperial, his family have left them to the Imperial War Museum which is great um and so you, you although they've been printed by the squadron the uh, regimental association as well um you can see the originals and and yeah, he does these little sketch maps of where he's buried them and stuff. And so this is that when, so he buries them immediately as quickly as he possibly can, makes very detailed notes about where they are, so that when the fighting has completely died down and they're starting to lay out new cemeteries, the people who are, are disinterring these bodies and putting them back into the cemeteries know where to get them. Uh, and he does very very detailed notes, but also you know like Stanley and like, like the squadron commanders is also um, constantly having to kind of write condolence letters and stuff which is incredibly tough so he plays an incredibly important role he's obviously an absolutely remarkable man as were so many of those people that served the Sherwood Rangers you know it really is an extraordinary regiment well James really appreciate that thoroughly absorbing talking about the SRY um, and very much looking forward to speaking to you again soon thanks Doris <laughs>